Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a margarita. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a tequila sunrise. We're on kind of the same page here. Today, we're going to discuss the smiley face murder theory. Some of you may be familiar with Keith Hunter Jefferson, the happy face killer who was a serial killer who murdered at least eight women and sent letters to the police. This is a totally separate case. This is a totally separate set of crimes and theories from that. So the smiley face murder theory was created by former police officers Kevin Gannon and Anthony Duarte, as well as criminal justice professor Dr. Lee Gilbertson. The theory revolves around an epidemic of college-aged young white men, often successful athletes or academics, who go missing after a night out with friends and are later found dead in local rivers or bodies of water. Their deaths are ruled accidental drownings, but Gilbertson, Duarte, and Gannon believe that the deaths are instead the work of a gang-like organization of domestic terrorists that are now coined the Smiley Face Killers because of happy face graffiti found at purported crime scenes. In their opinion, the young men are targeted, kidnapped, and murdered by dangerous criminals who remain at large and continue to kill. The detectives believe the crimes are motivated by jealousy and reflect a coordinated effort to go after men that the killers perceive to be privileged or, quote-unquote, the best of the best. Gannon, Gilbertson, and Duarte publicly announced the smiley face murder theory in 2008 and identified more than 40 cases of accidental or undetermined drowning across 11 states and 25 cities that fit their parameters. In 2019, an estimated 335 men were potential smiley face murder victims with more deaths occurring each year. The goal of the three men is to have these cases reclassified as homicides and to link the cases together. The trio points to a variety of pieces of evidence that point to foul play in the men's deaths. First is physical evidence that doesn't add up with decomposition timelines associated with drowning, as the bodies of several victims who have been discovered floating in the water showed signs of decomposition of just two to three days when they had been missing for 20 to 40 days. And we'll get a little bit more into detail with this when we talk about three notable cases. Gannon also noted that the presence of land insects, lividity patterns, and the lack of bloating associated with the recovered remains suggests that the victims died on land and not in the water. GHB, a common date rape drug, is present in 99% of the bodies according to Gannon. GHB isn't typically included on post-mortem toxicology tests, but many families of suspected smiley face victims have either requested that the coroner test for this chemical during the autopsy, or they've sent Gannon, Gilbertson, and Duarte samples for them to test themselves. The group believes the forensic evidence proves that the victims were drugged before they were abducted, then murdered, and then placed into the water. Besides the similarities in victim profile and circumstances around their disappearance and death, they also point to 13 symbols, including smiley face graffiti, that they've located near what they believe to be crime scenes. Duarte claims that a possible reason these deaths were never considered homicides is a disconnect between police and medical examiners. So let's take a look at three notable cases people associate with the smiley face 
murder theory. And the first is Patrick McNeil. Patrick McNeil is often considered the first known victim of the smiley face murders. I've seen him referred to as victim zero before. And he was a 21-year-old Fordham University student that was last seen drinking with his friends at a bar in uptown Manhattan on February 16th, 1997. Patrick was known as a womanizer who was heavily involved with extracurricular activities and very much cared about his appearance. Friends of Patrick who were there the night he vanished claimed he said goodbye and told everyone he was heading back to campus. Some remember Patrick being very drunk while others did not think he was very intoxicated. He was seen lingering outside the bar, allegedly waiting for a female friend to finish in the bathroom, but he ended up walking down the sidewalk alone, slowly navigating two city blocks until eventually he turned the corner at 90th Street and disappeared. Eyewitnesses claim he was stumbling and falling to the ground, which drew their attention to him. And eyewitnesses also described a vehicle which appeared to have been shadowing McNeil's movements from the minute he left the bar. Suspicious of its driver's intent, one eyewitness, having first seen this car double parked at the bar where McNeil originally was standing, even obtained a partial license plate number. Other onlookers also noted that they believed the occupants were tailing Patrick, saying the vehicle would come to a complete stop and then resume again each time McNeil would falter and get back up. After Patrick turned onto 90th Street, the vehicle followed him and was not seen again. On April 7th, 1997, so this is months after Patrick went missing, his badly decomposed body, clad only in his blue jeans and socks, was spotted face up in the East River near a Brooklyn pier, 12 miles from where his last known location was. His case was then tentatively upgraded as a potential abduction and murder pending further investigation by the police, where homicide detective Kevin Gannon took it on. Gannon had suspected from the body's lack of skin slippage that McNeil hadn't been in the water for the entire two months he'd been missing and had possibly only been floating in the river a few days before being discovered. Lividity, which is the discoloration of skin after death, clearly showed McNeil had to have died lying face down for all his blood to settle in those parts of his body. Yet his body had been discovered and recovered lying face up. He was also found with rope burns around his neck and had other strange markings on his body. And his case is unsolved. The next notable case is that of William Hurley. On October 8, 2009, 24-year-old Navy veteran William Hurley attended a Boston Bruins hockey game with friends in Boston, Massachusetts. Halfway through the game, he called his fiancée, Clara Mahoney, and told her he wanted to leave. Mahoney drove to the stadium and Hurley agreed to meet her outside. When she arrived, he was nowhere to be found. She called him to find out where he was waiting. Mahoney said he answered the phone and she heard him ask someone where he was located. The man said, quote, 99 Nassau Street, end quote, and Hurley said his cell phone battery was going dead. Mahoney drove to the address, but Hurley was not there. She called him a second time, but his cell phone seemed to be out of battery. She said she drove around for an hour before returning home, thinking Hurley got another ride, and that when she got back, Hurley was still gone. Mahoney reported him missing, and various searches were conducted. Six days after his disappearance, Hurley's body was found in the Charles River, near where he asked Mahoney to pick him up. 
Investigators said there was no signs of foul play and his death was ruled an undetermined drowning. Hurley's mother received a copy of the autopsy report and allowed a physician to analyze the finding. She found out that her son had reportedly suffered blunt force trauma to the head, his eye socket, and behind his left leg. GHB was also found in his system along with alcohol. A smiley face was found painted near the river. The last notable case we're going to look at is that of Todd Gieb. 22-year-old Todd Gieb went missing in the early morning hours of June 12, 2005 while at a bonfire party near his home in Casanova, Michigan. He was reported missing by his mother later that day. On the night of his disappearance, Gieb made several calls from his cell phone. One of them was to a friend who said she heard Gieb say, quote, I'm in a field, end quote, before the call dropped. His body was found 22 days later in a lake that had previously been searched. His death was ruled an undetermined drowning. Gibbs' head and shoulders were sticking out of the water as if he had gone for a swim. Gibbs' remain also had very little signs of decomposition which would have been present if he had died the day he went missing. Alcohol and antidepressants were found in Gibbs' toxicology screening but it was reported that Gieb was not suffering from any form of depression at the time. A smiley face had been spray painted on a tree near where Gieb's body was found, and a smiley face sticker was placed on his gravesite. Despite these suspicious cases and claims, the FBI Center for Homicide Research and many others don't buy into the smiley face murder theory. In April 2008, the day after the trio publicly announced their theory, the FBI released a statement that it had, quote, not developed any evidence to support links between these tragic deaths or any evidence substantiating the theory that these deaths are the work of a serial killer or killers, end quote. Instead, the letter says that, quote, the vast majority of these cases appear to be alcohol-related drownings, end quote. Two years later, the nonprofit Center for Homicide Research in Minneapolis released a more comprehensive study titled, quote, Drowning the Smiley Face Murder Theory, end quote. In it, the center outlined 18 points that, quote, unquote, debunk the idea that these deaths could be linked or are anything more than accidental drownings. Points include a lack of physical evidence of a serial killer, with researchers noting that the bodies were found without signs of torture, strangulation, or otherwise inexplicable blood force trauma, or other evidence that could point to a quote-unquote homicidal drowning, itself an exceptionally rare crime. As for the presence of GHB, considered by some the smoking gun in Hurley's case and others, detractors offer alternative explanation for these results pointing to the chemical process of decomposition, the possibility that they took it willingly, and issues with the trio's testing processes. Naysayers also note that the smiley face graffiti found near the crime scenes differ in size, shape, color, and style. They also say that some graffiti appears to have occurred long before any deaths. Researchers 
point to a lack of consistency in terms of locating the graffiti since authorities are only able to estimate where a body would have gone into the water. It is not possible to know exactly where the smiley face graffiti should be located to fit the pattern. Canadian criminologist Michael Arntfield said, quote, in most of these cases, we don't know where the men went into the water or where they actually died, end quote. Smiley faces are also the most common non-gang related piece of graffiti. Many explain these deaths as simply accidents related to binge drinking. According to a 2015 report by the Center for Disease Control, the two leading causes of death for white males under the age of 44 are accidents and suicide. Men between the ages of 18 to 34 are also most likely to binge drink. A report released in 2010 by police in La Crosse, Wisconsin, a college town that is considered by some to be a hub of smiley face killers, supported this explanation, noting that between the fall of 2006 and February 2010, police and foot patrol in La Crosse stopped at least 65 intoxicated persons from approaching local rivers late at night. The report went on to detail that cases of 20 near-drowning victims who had survived and whose testimonies pointed to dares, suicide attempts, and most commonly, accidents. The Center for Homicide Research's own team found that footwear slip marks are common on the riverbanks of the Mississippi River, which is another river that victims are commonly found in. Despite these counter-arguments, Duarte, Gilbertson, and Gannon still believe they're onto something, and many supporters in law enforcement and forensic pathology agree. However, they do feel that their work has not been taken seriously. Regardless, the trio keep working to bring closure and justice to these families. Gannon has said, quote, we won't stop until we do so, end quote. Del, had you ever heard about the Smiley Face murders before? And if so, do you think they're connected? I had never heard of this theory before you mentioned discussing it here. And honestly, I don't think that all of these murders are connected. I think that it's a fascinating theory. And I do think that there are more serial killers in the United States than are known. Police do have a track record for not working with each other. But in these cases, it does seem like they are accidents. And you also have to consider that several of these were found in colder climates, which completely messes up the timing of decomposition. And so that's another factor that you have to look at. I know that they were looking at GHB as being possibly connected to it, but then there would be more evidence for how they consumed it. They would be able to go to the bars or to the parties that these people were at and talk to people that saw someone messing with the guy's drinks. It would just be more evidence that something nefarious was happening. And it doesn't seem like that is happening in this case. I do think that it's interesting how quickly the FBI came out and shut down this theory. I definitely think that they probably didn't take it seriously. And so they were just like, listen, we're going to get this statement out the way. We don't want to hear anything else about that. But then they also have the Center for Homicide Research backing them up and doing the real evidence-based searches for links, and they haven't been able to find anything. 
what are your thoughts? It's so hard for me to say because I think something is going on, but I can't say 100% I'm sure that there is a smiley face killer, a gang of killers out there. I do think some of these cases, these 40 to 335 cases are accidental drownings, but I think that the few that we mentioned are very strange. I would think it would be too hard to have this underground organization of people throughout the country killing these men so expertly, I guess, that they keep getting away with it. That's what's hard for me to believe. Also, I think that the smiley face graffiti also throws me off a little bit just because it is a very common type of graffiti and you know if a killer is going to throw someone's body in the water they don't necessarily know I guess where the body is going to end up I mean I guess if it's in like still water you would know it would stay there it's a lot to really take into consideration I definitely can believe that it's a group of people but I'm not convinced and I'm not married to the idea. I really want to hear more from the investigators' perspectives. I think that there is a lot more information they have that they're not sharing with the public and I would love to read it and hear about that. You can't deny that there are very weird uh, instances or aspects of these cases. It was hard to pick just three to talk about because so many of them are so strange, but a lot of these bodies are found in previously searched areas. There's some people who will call a friend or a family member. There's other people who they're out with a friend. The friend is like, you know, incapacitated and they end up at the hospital not remembering what happened. And then someone they're with ends up dead. I feel like Patrick McNeil's case, something was up. It seemed like Patrick McNeil had people that did not like him that claimed they were his friends. I'm curious if they were somehow involved. Many people saw this suspicious car following him, you know, and whether they wanted to maybe rob him because they saw that he was drunk out of his mind and they wanted to take advantage of him and something went wrong, or if they really did target him to torture him. It's such a fascinating theory to me for some reason. I did want to note that from 2005 to 2014, there were an average of 3,536 fatal, unintentional, non-boating related drownings annually in the United States, which came out to 10 deaths per day. It's a lot more than I would have really suspected, but water can really get people. When I've heard people talk about this case, I've heard a lot of people saying like, oh, it's a drunk guy. You know, if he has to pee, maybe he's going to go to the river to do it, which I think is understandable. But I think there's more to it in a lot of these cases. I wish I could have like a definitive answer. Like I wish I could just know what's going on. The smiley face murders are notable for being a string of seemingly related yet unrelated cases of drownings. And again, there is a question of, is there a potential serial killer out there? And this is not the only case where there's crimes that look to be connected. The first potential serial killer case we'll talk about is the tube sock killer and mineral Washington murders. This potential serial killer was active for just four months and killed at least four people, two sets of couples, in Mineral Washington. The first victims, Stephen Harkins and Ruth Cooper, were discovered on August 14, 1985. The couple had planned a weekend camping trip at Tool Lake, but they did not come back to work the following Monday and were reported missing. Harkin's body was found first in his sleeping bag, suggesting that he was killed by a shot to the head in his sleep. Their pet dog was found shot to death as well, but Cooper was still missing. 
Over a month later, Cooper's skull was found and positively identified using dental records. The rest of her body and belongings were found in a nearby area and a tube sock was wrapped around her neck. Her cause of death was determined to be a gunshot to the abdomen. The next victims were Mike Reamer and his girlfriend, Diana Robertson, who were on a camping trip to get a Christmas tree near Nisqually River, about 45 minutes from where Harkins and Cooper were with their daughter, Crystal. The same evening that they left, Crystal was found alive standing outside of a Kmart about 30 miles away. She was only two years old and could not communicate much, but she did say that, quote, mommy was in the trees, end quote. Because of the winter weather, their bodies were not discovered until over two months later. Robertson was found first with a tube sock tied around her neck. The couple's pickup truck was nearby, but Reamer was nowhere to be found. Police believed him to be the killer of Diana, Harkins, and Cooper because of his history of domestic violence. In 2011, a partial skull belonging to Reamer was found within a mile radius of where Robertson's body was found back in 1986. Because of the age of the skull, investigators are now under the impression that Reamer was another victim, but because only a small part of the remains were found, cause of death could not be determined. All four murders are still unsolved. The next unsolved uh, series of potential serial killer murders is the Colonial Parkway murders, which we hope to do a more in-depth episode on at a later date. But they are a string of four double murders that took place between 1986 and 1989 near the 23-mile Colonial Parkway in Virginia. All of the victims were young, white, and either a romantic couple or a pair that could resemble a couple to an outsider. Many of the murders took place on a holiday weekend or school break that aligned with the nearby College of William and Mary's schedule. The first victims were 27-year-old Kathy Thomas and 21-year-old Rebecca Dowski, who had been dating for several months. On October 9, 1986, they went out to get food. Three days later, the couple was found dead in Kathy's car. Their throats were both slashed and they had been strangled. The next victims were 20-year-old David Nobling and 14-year-old Robin Edwards. Nobling had taken Edwards out with his younger brother and cousin that day, and Nobling was in a relationship with his longtime girlfriend who was pregnant at the time of his murder. On September 20th, 1987, Nobling's beloved truck was found abandoned by the James River Bridge. The keys were still in the ignition, the door was open, and the windshield wipers were on. Three days later, both Nobling and Edwards' bodies washed up onto the beach at Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge. They had both been shot in the head execution style. Then there was Cassandra Haley, 19, and Richard Keith Call, who was 20, and they went missing on April 9th, 1988, after going on a date to the movies and later to a party. They were both college students at the time. Call's beloved Toyota Celica was discovered at a York River overlook just a few miles from where Thomas Dowski had been murdered two years prior. Several clothing items of theirs were found in the vehicle, as were the car keys. Dogs traced their scents to the river but soon lost it, and their bodies have unfortunately never been found. 
The final victims were Anna Maria Phelps, who was 18, and Daniel Lauard, who was 21. Phelps was dating Lauer's younger brother, whom she lived with in Virginia Beach. Lauer was moving in with the young couple, and Phelps joined him on a ride back to their hometown so he could get his belongings. On September 5th, 1989, their car was found abandoned at an I-64 rest stop, which, strangely, the rest stop was on the opposite route of their way back to Virginia Beach. Months later, they were found murdered, wrapped in a blanket in the woods. Their bodies were so decomposed that investigators were unable to determine a cause of death. None of these murders and disappearances have been solved, and all cases are still open and active. Some of these cases are believed to be committed by the same serial killer, and it's theorized that an authority figure, like a police officer or park ranger, or someone pretending to be an authority figure, is the Colonial Parkway killer. Many believe the killer was able to coax the victims to pull over or get them out of their vehicles by using their authority. And another piece of evidence that supports this is that IDs were found in Kathy Thomas's car, which made people think someone had asked her to give them her ID. I guess it was one of the first things that was found that was very visible in her car, and that's not really something you would just have lying around um, in your car. Do you have thoughts on either of these cases, Del? And do you think that there are more serial killer cases out there that we just don't know about yet? I think that these two cases definitely have more evidence towards it being a singular person committing these crimes. There's much more of a shared MO, uh, victimology, all of that with these two type of murders. And I 100% believe that there are more serial killer cases out there that we don't know about. I think that is a combination of the crimes not being connected and people using different ways to kill people. I definitely think that as technology gets better and as police departments start working with each other more, we're going to see these cases come up more and we're going to hear about murders that are happening now that finally got connected 20, 30 years later. Yeah, I think those are all really good, interesting points. For some reason, this is kind of hard for me to believe, but I've heard, I guess like statistically, there's less serial killers in that they're on the decline. And part of that is because of DNA evidence, which I can definitely believe that part. But it's also making people wonder about, you know, everyone's favorite topic, why do people become serial killers? Why do people kill? So if anyone has any thoughts on that too, definitely let us know. I absolutely think the mineral murders are related. It's so obvious to me. The Colonial Parkway murders, I think some are related, but I don't think they're all related. And I've seen people theorize that there could even be a copycat killer. It's such a shame that these happened so long ago and so many people had to die. So many families were affected. I just really hope we can get answers. Maybe some DNA evidence would help with that. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments if you think that the smiley face murder theory is real. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode all about the death of Conrad Roy, which many believe was motivated by his girlfriend, Michelle Carter. As always, stay safe.